Gentile Christians who had been bewitched, as he says at the beginning of chapter 3, by a group of Jewish false teachers known as the Judaizers, who essentially told that for you to be saved, not only must you believe in Jesus, but you've got to become a Jew. You've got to go through the ceremonial rites of Judaism uh, before you can be saved. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to adhere to the Mosaic law, the Mosaic ceremonies. And Paul says no. Those ceremonies have been abolished. Those have been set aside. We're in the New Covenant. We're in Christ. And salvation has always been, even in the Old Covenant, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we cling to Christ. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer quickly, and then we'll open up the Word of God together. Father, thank You for saving us by Your grace. Thank You for giving the law to us. The law that came through Moses. We know that law consisted of several aspects, three distinctions. There is the ceremonial law that pointed us to Christ and His sacrifice for us and the work that He would accomplish on our behalf. There was circumcision. There was there were uh, sacrificial. There was a sacrificial system. There were feast days and dietary laws. All of those things pointed to Christ and us becoming separate from the world through His sacrifice for us. And we know those things have passed away. They are no longer binding on the people of God in the new covenant. But we also know there were moral laws there that are always binding on every person and every age and every generation, dispensation and covenant and. Those laws consist of things like you shall not lie, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, etc., etc., etc. We know those laws are binding. Those laws are still to be obeyed by believers. And though we're not under the law as a covenant of works, yet we have it as a rule of life. We're not saved by the law, but we're saved and now enabled to keep the law as a pattern of life by the work of the Spirit for your glory. Or simply as Paul put it, The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we're thankful, Lord, that Your Spirit enables us to walk in obedience. We're thankful that Your Spirit enables us to grow in grace and love for Christ and conformity to His image. And now we pray that as we come to the Word of God and open it up this morning to dig deeply into the well of Scripture, to draw out the God-intended meaning and theology and applications that You have for us, We pray that we would have help from the Holy Spirit, that anointing that we have from You that teaches us all things, that He would do that this morning, that He would lead us into all truth, and that He would warm our hearts and our love for Jesus so that our lives would become more obedient to Him. We pray, Lord, that You would do all of these things for the good of Your church and the glory of Your own great name. Amen. Alright, as we turn in the Word of God this morning, you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 5 again. 1 John chapter 5. And we return this morning to the passage that we began looking at last time, and that is verses 6 through 12. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. A message that I've entitled, The Testimony of God. The Testimony of God. We know that John's concern here is that these believers be able to discern between true Christianity and counterfeit Christianity. That they be able to discern between true conversion and false conversion. His concern is for their assurance. He wants them to have confidence in their salvation. And certainly that's what all believers want. All believers want to have assurance. 
All pastors want their flock to have assurance. As a shepherd of a flock, I want you to know that you're going to spend eternity with Christ in glory and not have to fear the wrath of God in hell. And John was the same way. Out of a love for his flock, he desired that they know that they were saved. In verse 13, he states the purpose for which he wrote the letter. There he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The purpose of the letter is to provide believers with confidence and assurance in their salvation. And there are three tests, as you know, in the letter that John presents repeatedly that would provide believers with that assurance, assuming that you pass the test. Those tests are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. True Christians believe the truth, obey the truth, and love in truth. That's John's message in a nutshell. And John's focus in this particular passage is once again doctrinal. It's theological, or you could even say it's Christological. This is part four of the doctrinal test. Let me read the text one more time for you. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the name and the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The key word there that should have stood out to you is the word testify or testimony. The word is used in its noun and verb form nine times in these seven verses. And verse 9 really tells us what the passage is all about. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. This text is about the testimony of God. It is about God's testimony concerning His Son, concerning Jesus Christ. It is a Christological testimony. So the key word then is testify or testimony. It refers to one who has seen or heard or experienced something and then is able to give a report of that experience. It means to bear witness, to give evidence, to provide proof to give testimony. It would often refer to eyewitness testimony. Someone who personally experienced a reality and then was able to personally testify to his personal experience. And in this passage here, it ultimately refers to the testimony of God Himself. I told you last week that eyewitness testimony is an important part of any culture. It's important today in our culture. And it was certainly important in the biblical culture. 
over and over again you read in the Bible about the testimony of two or three witnesses. 2 Corinthians 13.1 says, Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that's just one example of many that we could give from both the Old and the New Testaments. Clearly, Scripture is concerned with truth, concerned with exposing error, concerned with justice and righteousness, and all of that must be based upon reliable testimony. This means then that we should not be foolish. We should not be gullible. We shouldn't just believe anything and everything. If we're going to believe that something is true, we should have good reason to believe that. There's got to be evidence to substantiate our beliefs. There needs to be witnesses to verify a truth claim. We need to have some sort of reliable testimony if we're to believe that something is true. And the issue in question here is the person of Christ. The nature and identity of Jesus. John has said much about the person of Christ throughout the letter of 1 John so far. Clearly, he's very concerned that his readers understand who Jesus is. The Christological test or a proper belief in the person of Christ is an absolutely essential test of saving faith. Anyone who rejects the true biblical revelation about the person of Christ is not a true Christian. And John has made that point over and over again. If you go back to chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, John begins the letter with an affirmation of the deity and humanity of Christ. And the very first four verses which serve as the prologue or the preface to the epistle, John begins with Christology. And there he writes in 1 John 1, starting in verse 1, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. In other words, Jesus, the word of life, is that which is from the beginning. He is the eternal God. And the eternal God was manifested. That is to say, He became a man. He became a real, historical, manifested human being in the incarnation, the virgin birth. That's exactly what John said at the beginning of his Gospel, isn't it? In the prologue of his Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then verse 14 adds, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God incarnate. He is the God-man. And John, as I said, has emphasized that truth over and over again. And of course, here in the final chapter, 1 John chapter 5, John once again reaffirms that truth. In verse 1 of chapter 5, he stated that true Christians believe that Jesus is the Christ. In verse 5, he says that true Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Throughout the letter, he has stated that to deny that essential truth is to render yourself an antichrist. 
All who reject the truth about Jesus are anti-Christ. So John's point is very clear then. Jesus is God the Son. God in human flesh. And all true Christians believe that truth. So we must believe that Jesus is the Christ and Son of God. But why? Why should you believe that? What evidence do we have? Without any evidence, without any testimony, without witnesses, we shouldn't believe that. I told you last week that Jesus affirmed that Himself. In John chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus said, If I alone testify about Myself, My testimony is not true. Right? If a man comes and says, Hey, I'm God, I'm the Son of God, I'm God incarnate, but he can't provide any evidence, any witnesses, any testimony to verify his claim, his claim should be rejected as false. I mean, people claim to be God all the time. There have been many false messiahs throughout redemptive history. Certainly, they're not all telling the truth. So how do we know that someone's telling the truth? What makes Jesus any different? Why should we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? There are atheists who believe there is no God. There are Mormons who believe Jesus is just one of many gods. There are Muslims who say Jesus is nothing but a prophet, second to Muhammad. So how can we know that Jesus really is the Son of God? Well, in this passage, John answers that. John answers that. He gives us reasons to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm pretty sure we don't have a clock in here like that, do we? Is that my sign to stop? Yes. I'm pretty sure we don't have a clock like that. But John is going to give us reasons to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's going to provide for us a fourfold testimony. Four witnesses that verify that Jesus is exactly whom he claimed to be. It's as if John presents a courtroom setting. He calls multiple witnesses to the stand. And at the end, the verdict is clear. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Just examine the evidence, John says. So four witnesses. We looked at the first three last week, and we'll look at the fourth one this time. The first witness that John called to the stand that we looked at last week was the water. The water. Verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood... Jesus Christ. That is to say, Jesus is the one who came. He came into the world. He came in the flesh. He came as a man. He came to John and the other apostles. And He came as the Christ and Son of God. And He came by the water. John says, this is the one who came by water. And now last time we concluded that water there refers to His baptism the baptism of Christ. Remember the false teachers, the followers of Serenthus, taught that Jesus was merely a man who was empowered by the Christ Spirit at His baptism when the Christ Spirit descended on Him, but then at His death, the Christ Spirit had already departed from Him, so He died as nothing more than a man. So there was then a sense in which He was the Christ at His baptism, but not at His death. And John wrote this letter in part to refute that notion, and so he says here that the first witness is the baptism of Christ. 
The baptism of Christ bore witness to the fact that Jesus is the Christ and Son of God. We noted last week that at His baptism, some miraculous things took place, didn't they? Jesus came up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descended on Him as a dove in bodily form, Scripture says. And then the voice of the Father came from heaven saying, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That should be enough to convince anybody. It was certainly enough to convince John the Baptist. So there's no doubt then that the baptism of Christ bears witness to the divine sonship of Jesus. That's witness number one. But the second witness that we looked at last time was the blood. The blood. Verse 6 again. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. Again, the blood refers to His crucifixion. Water is baptism, blood, crucifixion. These are like the bookends of Jesus' earthly ministry. He began His earthly ministry at about 30 years of age, at His baptism that culminated in His death on the cross. And at both of those events, God the Father provided undeniable, irrefutable, unequivocal testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, the followers of Serenthus said He was only the Christ at His baptism, not at His death. John says no. He came as the Messiah, and He did it at both the baptism and at His crucifixion. And we noted last time that there were some pretty miraculous things at the death of Christ, weren't there? Darkness fell on the land from noon to 3 p.m. If you're crucifying a guy and he claims to be God, and all of a sudden it gets dark from noon to 3 p.m., something's probably happening. You might want to reconsider your actions. And then we know there was an earthquake after he had breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was split in two, and Old Testament saints were resurrected, appearing to many, and the centurion that stood guard over Jesus said, you know what, this has got to be the Son of God. Surely this is the Son of God. Even the pagan Roman soldier understood the clarity of this testimony. So Jesus is the Son of God. His death bears witness to that fact. But then John called a third witness to the stand that we looked at last time. And that is the Spirit. The Spirit. Verse 6 again. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The Holy Spirit adds His own testimony to the deity of Jesus. He testified to Christ at His baptism. He's the one that descended on Him as a dove. He testified uh, through His miracles. Jesus did miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. He testifies through the Scriptures that He inspired. And of course, He testifies today in the hearts of believers. The Holy Spirit bears witness to Christ. And the Spirit's testimony can be trusted because John says the Spirit is the truth. He is the source of truth. He only speaks the truth. And therefore, His testimony must be true. And it must be believed by us. Then in verses 7 and 8, John adds in summary fashion, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And we talked last week about the differences in the King James and the New Modern Translations and how that traces back through the history of the Greek text 
I'm not going to rehash that for you. You can go back and listen to that on the internet if you'd like. But suffice it to say that John says there are three witnesses that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and they are in agreement. They are one in that testimony. Their testimony is consistent. Jesus is the Christ and Son of God. That would be enough for us, wouldn't it? That's enough for us. We could be convinced by that. We could go on. But John has more for us. So all of that was by way of review. But now in verses 9-12, through 12, John is going to call one final witness to the stand. One more. Number four. The Father. The Father. Verses 9-12 through 12 provide the testimony of God the Father to His own Son. And as we look at that testimony, I want you to notice four things concerning that testimony. Four things. First of all, notice the contrast of the testimony. The contrast. Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. There is a contrast here between the testimony of men and the testimony of God. If we receive the testimony of men, and we often do that, then how much more should we receive the testimony of God? His testimony is greater. And here, God refers to the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and that will become clear in just a moment. But this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. The testimony of God is greater than the testimony of men. That is to say, it's greater in believability. It's greater in trustworthiness, in truthfulness. It's more trustworthy than the testimony of any human being. Divine testimony is much more sure than human testimony. We believe the testimony of men all the time, don't we? We do it in our court systems. We do it at our job. We do it at our, in our home. We often believe the testimony of our children and our spouses and other people in our lives. We believe the testimony of men all the time. And yet the Bible teaches that all men are liars. All men are liars. So how much more then can you trust the testimony of God? The God of all truth. The God who according to Titus 1-2 cannot lie. He is the God of unchangeable truth. Numbers 23-19 says, God is not a man that He should lie. Hebrews 6.18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. Did you know that? There's something that God can't do. People say, oh, that sounds blasphemous. Well, there's something that God can't do. God cannot lie. Because it is contrary to His perfect nature. When Satan lies, he just speaks from his own nature, Jesus said in John chapter 8. When God tells the truth, He speaks from His nature. He is true. He can only tell the truth. And therefore, as Romans chapter 3, verse 4 says, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. So if it's ever acceptable then to receive the testimony of men, and it is, Scripture affirms that it is, then how much more should you receive the greater and more reliable testimony of God? His testimony is more sure and more trustworthy, and we would do well to believe that testimony. So at the end of the day, we're Christians because of God's testimony. That's why. We believe in Jesus because of God's testimony. 
We follow Christ. We believe He's the Son of God. We reject the lies of the world because we believe the testimony of God. The testimony of God is greater than the testimony of the Watchtower Society and those Jehovah's Witnesses who knock on your door. It's greater than the testimony of the LDS Church, the Mormons. It's greater than the testimony of the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church. The testimony of God is more sure, more, more reliable, more trustworthy, and we ought to embrace it. Now secondly, notice the nature of the testimony. The nature. Who is the one testifying and to whom does he testify? Verse 9 again. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. This is the testimony of God, and it is a testimony concerning His Son. That means that this is the testimony of God the Father, because the Father is the Father of the Son. That goes without saying. This is the Father's testimony. The Father then becomes the fourth witness here. God the Father has provided testimony concerning His Son. That is to say, He has provided testimony that Jesus is His Son. God the Father has explicitly and unambiguously stated throughout Scripture that Jesus Christ is His Son. And in the context, the Spirit and the water and the blood provide the testimony of God the Father. This is the Father's testimony. The Father bore witness at the baptism of Christ. That covers the water. We know what happened. Jesus came up out of the water. And what did the Father say? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That exact same thing happened in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration Jesus takes three of His apostles, Peter, James, and John. He takes them up on the mountain, and while He's there, He's transfigured before them. His heavenly glory shines forth for just a moment. And then verse 5 says this, While He was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. That again was the voice of God the Father testifying to the deity of His Son, Jesus Christ. Giving an undeniable testimony. So the Father bore witness at His baptism. He bore witness at His transfiguration. He also bore witness at the death of Christ. Who do you think it is that sent the darkness over the land for three hours? Pretty sure God's in control of that, isn't He? Who do you think it is that sent the earthquake that tore the veil of the temple in two? I'm going to chalk it up to the Father. Thank God the Father did that. Who's the one that raised the Old Testament saints from the dead? Who's the one that then raised Jesus from the dead on the third day? The Father. All of this then provides the testimony of the Father. And of course, the Holy Spirit becomes the testimony of the Father. Because He's the one who anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and therefore empowered Him to do miracles. He's the one who gave Him the works to do and therefore the miracles and the work of the Spirit becomes the testimony of the Father. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells us that the Father bears witness and that His testimony is greater. Listen to what Jesus says in John eight seventeen. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. 
We talked about that, right? Two or three witnesses. Your law says that, Jesus tells them. Your law says that if two or three men bear witness, then you should give some consideration to what they're saying. Verse 18. I am He who testifies about Myself, and the Father who sent Me testifies about Me. Look, if you can receive the testimony of two or three witnesses as true, two or three human witnesses, how much more then should you receive the testimony of two or three divine witnesses? God the Son and God the Father both testify to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. If you're going to receive the testimony of men, you certainly should receive this divine testimony, which is more reliable. The Father bears witness. Turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. That's the fourth gospel, not 1 John, but all the way back to the gospels. John chapter 5. In John 5, Jesus is dealing with some of the same issues here. He's dealing with testimony and His own identity. Jesus came to Israel. He came as the Messiah. He came proclaiming the kingdom of God. He was their Messiah. And yet, most of them rejected Him. He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. So Jesus then begins to pile up a multiplicity of witnesses that verify His claims. John 5, starting in verse 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. When he says there's another that testifies about me, he's referring there to the Father. But first he presents several other witnesses. Verse 33. You have sent to John... And he has testified to the truth, that is John the Baptist. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He's saying, I've got a greater testimony than John. I've got the Father's testimony. But I'm even going to point you to John's testimony because I want to do whatever I can to convince you. I say it that you might be saved. I'm giving you undeniable proof here. Verse 35. He was the lamp, John the Baptist was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So you have then the testimony of John the Baptist. He bore witness to the fact that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And the Jews rejected John's testimony. They rejoiced for a while in his light, but eventually they stopped that rejoicing, they left that light, and they rejected it. Verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. We talked about that last time. The miraculous works that Jesus performed in the power of the Holy Spirit testified to His divine Sonship. And since these works are the works that the Father has given to Him, it is the testimony of the Father through those works. Verse 37 now. And the Father who sent me he has testified of me. He's looking at these Jews and he's saying, why are you rejecting me? You have been waiting on me for thousands of years. You have the Old Testament Scriptures. You have the testimony of John the Baptist who is a prophet. You have the testimony of God the Father. And yet you're rejecting me. You think they had an evidence problem? I think they had a heart problem. Unbelief is never an evidence problem. 
God has provided all the evidence every person needs to believe the truth. People reject the truth because they love sin and hate God. And the Pharisees are a classic case in point. So he says, The Father who sent me has testified to me. You have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His form. Verse 38. You do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He sent. God the Father has borne a sufficient witness to Christ. He has testified to Him. And the religious Jews in Jesus' day, like the heretics in John's day, like the heretics of our day, reject Him, not because of a lack of evidence, but because they reject the Word of God. The testimony of God. Verse 39 then kind of brings us to a crescendo here. Jesus says, you search the Scriptures. And they go, yes, we do. No one searched the Scriptures more diligently than these guys. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. How did you miss Me? You've been reading the Old Testament your whole life and here I am. I'm the very one the Old Testament testified to. And yet you've rejected Me. The Scripture bears witness to Christ. God the Father bears witness to Christ through His Word. This means that those who reject the deity of Christ, those who reject the truth about Jesus, do so because they reject God's Word. They reject the testimony of the Father. Back to 1 John 5 now. So just there in that chapter, you had the testimony of John the Baptist. You had the testimony of Jesus' works. You had the testimony of God the Father. You had the testimony of Scripture. All of that, like the Spirit and the water and the blood, constitutes the testimony of God concerning His Son. God the Father has stated very clearly that Jesus is His Son. And the testimony of God is greater than the testimony of men. Now thirdly, I want you to notice the response to this testimony. The response. There are only two ways to respond, and verse 10 covers both of those. Look at verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. Those are the two possible responses. You either believe or you disbelieve. You either receive it or you reject it. There is no middle ground. There is no third alternative. Jesus says you're either for me or against me. There's no straddling the fence. And John says, the one who believes in the Son of God, that is, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who believes that He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, the one who believes that and believes in Him, he has the testimony in himself. In other words, that person embraces the testimony of God with his heart. That person has embraced God's testimony about His Son within His innermost being. And now, the Holy Spirit who lives within the believer, He testifies to the believer's heart. This is what we could call the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.15 says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But we could add that 
The Spirit also testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. And He testifies to that reality in our heart. What does Romans 10 say? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe where? In your heart. In your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you'll be saved. We've got to believe it with the heart, with the innermost part of our being. This isn't merely agreeing with gospel truth. This is embracing it with the heart of a person. Saving faith. The person who believes has the testimony in himself. But what's the opposite of believing in the Son? You might think, well, it's not believing in the Son. Well, that's true, but verse 10 words it a little differently. The one who does not believe God. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. The opposite of not believing in the Son is not believing God. Making God a liar. (coughs) To reject Jesus Christ as the Son of God is to disbelieve God. It is to blasphemously accuse God of lying because God has said that Jesus is His Son. Verse 10 again, because He has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. To reject the truth about Jesus is to reject God's own testimony to Jesus. That's why when Muslims claim to believe God, but they reject Christ, it sounds ludicrous, absurd, foolish, inconsistent. Islam teaches that God has no son. That Jesus is just a prophet, second to Muhammad. But God has said that He indeed does have a son. And that Jesus is that eternal, essential, only begotten Son of the Father. Exactly. Very good point. Very good. Muhammad's dead, isn't he? Jesus is not. Muhammad underwent decay. Jesus is resurrected. I should have put that in my notes, but that's why I got Patty sitting in the front. Amen. Muhammad is dead. He's a false prophet. But what God has said trumps what Muhammad said, doesn't it? God had testified 700 years before Muhammad was ever born that Jesus was His Son. All of the Greek manuscripts testified that Jesus was His Son. And then all of a sudden this guy comes onto the scene with no eyewitness testimony, by the way. Forget the two or three witnesses. He didn't have them. And he says, no, the Scriptures are corrupt. God's told me the truth. Here you go. I'm going to believe God. I'm going to believe God. Muslims don't believe God. That's the problem. They reject the truth about God. They reject Christ, and therefore they call God a liar. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe God. They don't believe Jehovah. They call Jehovah. They lie about Jehovah. They would say Jehovah lies because they don't testify to the truth about what Jehovah says of His Son. The Mormons do not believe God. The Gnostics in John's day did not believe God. And anyone today who rejects the truth about Jesus does not believe God. They've made Him a liar. I think that counts as blasphemy, doesn't it? To refer, to, to affirm that God is a liar, to deny what God has unequivocally declared, that is blasphemy. John Calvin said, Some wonder why God commends faith so much and why unbelief is so severely condemned. But then he adds, The glory of God is implicated in this. The glory of God is at stake, Calvin says. 
For since He designed to show a special instance of His truth in the Gospel, all they who reject Christ their offer to them leave nothing to Him. In other words, if you reject the truth about Christ, if you reject the testimony of God, you seek to rob Him of His glory. You rob Him of His glory. Romans chapter 4, verse 20 says of Abraham that he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. To believe God is to give glory to God. It's to say that God is trustworthy. He is true. He is believable. But to disbelieve God is to rob Him of His glory and to make Him out to be a liar. It is blasphemy. and should never be found in the heart of a believer. So that's the response to the testimony. You either believe or you disbelieve. You either accept it or reject it. You either believe it or make God out to be a liar. You either give glory to God or you rob God of His rightful glory. Which describes you? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you believed the truth that God has testified concerning His Son? Have you embraced that with your heart? And keeping in mind that faith, again, is not just intellectual assent. It's not just agreeing with the facts of the Gospel. It's a wholehearted, lifelong, total surrendering commitment to Him as Master and Lord and Savior. Have you committed yourself to Him? Are you trusting in Him? Have you believed the testimony of God? What would motivate us to believe this? What... what motive do we have? What's the benefit of this testimony? That brings us to verses 11 and 12. And that's the fourth thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice the benefit of the testimony. The benefit of believing it. Verse 11. And the testimony is this, that God has, testi- that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Here's the benefit. Here's the testimony, and here's the benefit of believing the testimony. God has given us eternal life. He's given us. That is, believers, those who believe His testimony. True Christians. God gives believers eternal life. And again, we've talked about this before. Eternal life is not merely a quantity of life but a quality of life. It's not merely a duration of life, it's a kind of life. It doesn't mean we just exist forever because the wicked will exist forever in hell, even in bodily form. It's not just existing. Eternal life is a kind of life that lasts forever. It is, as John 17.3 notes, it is fellowship with God in His Son. There Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is to know God and to know Christ. So if that's the case, then when does eternal life begin? Not in heaven. Not when you die. Not when Jesus comes back. Eternal life begins at the moment of your salvation. The moment you come to know Christ. Because eternal life is fellowship with God. It's communion with God. It's to have the life of God within us. It is to be 
in union with Him. And we will enjoy that life and that divine communion forever, throughout eternity. We possess it now, and we will enjoy the fullness of it hereafter in the new heavens and the new earth. But God gives us eternal life. That's the benefit of believing this testimony. And John adds, this life is in His Son. God provides salvation and eternal life for His people, and He only provides it in His Son. He has deposited that life in His Son. Only in Christ is eternal life to be found. It's what the Reformers called solus Christus. Salvation in Christ alone. What did Jesus say in John 14.6? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. He alone is life, and He alone is the giver of life. John opened the letter in the first four verses referring to Jesus as the eternal life which was with the Father and became manifest to us. Jesus is life itself. As the eternal God, He is the source of all life. Physical life, spiritual life, and eternal life. And as the God-man and mediator, as the Messiah, God has determined that that life would come in Him and through Him and only to those who are in union with Him by faith. In John 5.26, Jesus said, Just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. It's an amazing reality. The Father and the Son have existed from all eternity sharing in their divine life together. And now, we are invited to come share in that life with Him. It's amazing. Amazing. That life is in Christ and only shared by those who belong to the Son. This becomes then a motive for abiding in Christ. A motive for continuing to be a Christian, continuing to hold fast to Jesus. If we know that eternal life is only in Him, it's only in the Son, then we're not going to leave the Son and go somewhere else. We're going to say with Peter, where else shall we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. Where else is there for us to go? We have all that we need in Him. While the world loves their riches and their sin and their immorality and they love godlessness and they live it up and then they die and then they go to hell, we enjoy Christ both now and in the fullness in eternal life, in the eternal state. There's nowhere else for us to go. In verse 13, John tells us why he wrote the letter. So that we might know that we have eternal life. Here he tells us how to know we have eternal life. We have the Son. All who have the Son, who believe in the Son, who belong to the Son, possess everlasting life. That's the test. That's the Christological test. Jesus said in John 6.40, This is the will of My Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. If you have beheld the Son in His glory, and if you're a Christian, you have. And if you have believed upon Him, 
And if you're continuing to believe in Him, then you have eternal life. That's a good reason to continue in Christ, isn't it? Life is in Him and in Him alone. Finally, in verse 12, John adds, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. All who have the Son of God as their Savior and their Lord have salvation. They have eternal life. But all who do not have the Son, all who reject Him do not have life. They remain in a state of spiritual death. The Bible teaches very clearly that apart from Jesus Christ, all that remains for you is the wrath of God. You're not just a good person who's commendable, living a good life, and that you just need Jesus on the top, kind of His cherry on the ice cream. You are a wretched, sinful person, devoid of life, and you desperately need Christ, and without Him you're nothing. You need Christ. If you don't have Him, you're dead now, and you're headed for eternal death hereafter in hell forever. Two possible conditions. This is the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity of the Gospel. Jesus, the only way to God. We're all familiar with John 3.16, right? We know that one. Everyone in our culture has heard that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's great. But then we've got to read the verses that follow, right? What about the next verses? Verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Well, that's, that's fine, right? Verse 18. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Someone says, why are you judging me? You're not a Christian. I don't have to judge you. God's already judged you. You're already under His condemnation now. That's what the word judge can mean. They're condemnation. You're already condemned. If you don't have Christ, you are condemned now. You're on death row, waiting final sentencing, awaiting for the sentence to be carried out on the day of judgment. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not is dead. At the end of that very same chapter, that is John chapter 3, John the Baptist affirmed the very same thing. In John chapter 3, verse 36, John says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. If you are not a Christian today, the wrath of God abides upon you at every moment of every day. You need Christ not to give you a better life, Jesus doesn't promise you a better life anyway. He promises you persecution and a cross and death for His name. You need Christ not to fix your finances. You need Christ because you need to be saved from the wrath of God. You need Christ for the same reason a man in a falling plane needs a parachute. To save you from the law. The man falling from the plane needs to be saved from the law of gravity, which is about to take effect and send him to his death. You need to be saved from the law of God which is going to take its effect on the day of judgment and send you to hell. And Christ alone died for sinners. He alone bore the wrath of God. He alone gives you eternal life. Where do you stand?
Do you have the Son? Do you believe in Him? Do you believe God's testimony? We have four witnesses then that testify to the fact that Jesus is the Christ and Son of God. The water of His baptism, the blood of His death, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. These four witnesses constitute God's testimony concerning His Son. They constitute a trustworthy and reliable testimony, one that should be believed by us. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today, you have rejected God's testimony. You have rejected the Word of God. So where is your faith today, friends? Is it in Jesus as the Son of God? If not, I would plead with you today, come to Him before time is up. Before your heartbeat stops, before God in His common grace removes His restraining hand. You see, with one hand, God is inviting the sinner to come. With one hand, He's holding back His wrath, Paul Washer says. Holding His wrath back, pleading with the sinner to come, but one day both hands will drop and the wrath of God will consume you. Only those who are in the ark of the salvation that is Jesus Christ will be delivered from God's wrath on that day. Come to Him. And you'll find life in Him. But for those of us who already believe that testimony, we embrace the Father's testimony concerning His Son, we can know with absolute certainty that we have eternal life. That's the testimony. The testimony is clear, it's trustworthy, it's reliable, and all who believe it, all who have the Son, have the life. Do you have the life this morning? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for our Savior. The Lord Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man, we need a Savior that is such. A ladder that reached only to the ground but didn't reach to the heavens would not be enough. We need a ladder that goes from the heavens to the earth. We need a Savior that's both God and man, who can bring God and men together again. And we have such a Savior, our Lord Jesus. We know that He is God. We know that He created all things. We know that He is one with the Father. We know that He is the eternally begotten, divine Son, who came into the world as the Messiah. We know that He was such at His baptism and at His crucifixion. He remains the Messiah today in heaven at the right hand of God. And we know that He's going to come again in glory and bringing salvation for His people and wrath for His enemies. And our hope is in Him, Lord. Our hope is in the Son that You've given, the One in whom You've deposited the salvation and eternal life. We trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And if there's anyone here this morning who hasn't put their faith in the Savior, please, O God, change their heart, open their eyes to see the glory of Your Son, and may they run to Him in faith and find salvation in His name. Be with us as we go about the rest of our service, the rest of our day. Help us to live for the glory of our Savior, we pray. Amen.